Leave the long lens at home. It's far more striking than just a portrait when you have animals doing things. When you're in the field, look for these other behaviors. I was filming a huge cinnamon black bear boar who walked up to this sapling, and the sapling was probably an inch and a half in diameter, and tried to bend it and walk over it, and failed. Any animal has swagger while they're walking. It's a male bear in spring mating mode. It's what goes on out there. I mean, I've seen it a few times, but you know that that stuff goes on every day. Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed, your wildlife photography and outdoor adventure podcast. This show's hosts are Michael Morrow, Ron Hayes, and myself, Mark Raycroft. Guys, we're coming together over Skype again, across the continent. What's going on? Last time we talked, you were almost frozen solid. Has it changed? Actually, it has. Yeah. That's... It's flat balmy this afternoon. <laughs> it was cold again this morning, but it, it warmed up quickly. We've got a snowstorm coming in to the area. It's supposed to be a big spring blizzard type storm, so we'll see. But it, it was much warmer. I was out with no coat today so life is good well good yeah well it's kind of funny though because you you get used to zero degrees and then you can go out with no coat when it's 30 right right so that's what we've been doing is it's 30 right now and it seems like it's nice and toasty out there mm -hmm. well it's supposed to turn around quickly i hope because it's march so spring should be coming we got two feet of snow today we were supposed to get would have been about two inches forecasted and it just lake effect you got two feet today yeah just hammered us but it's light and fluffy because it all came so quickly it was beautiful outside there were so many things i wanted to do other than edit and then it cleared the end of the day the sky's cleared it's blue we have an arctic air mass coming in in march it is awesome so cold <laughs> minus 18 degrees celsius forecasted tonight but we have a few days of this left. Actually, I think it's another 48 hours of cold weather, and then we're supposed to be above freezing for daytime highs from then on out. So hopefully it'll change quickly, and this will be our last taste of or view of Winter Wonderland, which is inspiring me to get out of the office to try to get some snow shots that I've talked about for too long in editing. Editing super cold weather or bad weather for driving has curtailed the opportunities for me now i'm hoping to get up north a few hours later this week while there's still snow to get red foxes and pine martens and to play with this tiny little device now on audio you can't see what i'm holding up but it's the dji osmo pocket and on if you go and i'm glad you cleared that up when you said you were holding a tiny little device <laughs> right yes no i i'm <laughs> I'm not even going to touch that one. <laughs> so on, you can go now. We're, we're putting up our show on YouTube, on our YouTube channel, and you can listen there just as easily as anywhere else. At the same time, you can look over your shoulder while you're listening and see what we're talking about now as we're holding up devices or rewind it, pause it, you name it. Anyway, these things are awesome, super small. To be honest, I wish it was a little bit bigger. It's not much bigger than a big lighter kind of size for the and or size of a, of a finger kind of thing. A little 
But what's cool about it, why I'm looking forward to using it for vlogging on this trip, if we find foxes or pine martens and are able to tell the story behind the scenes of our adventure, how we got the images and capture some video, this little pocket is on, like we talked about in previous podcasts, in like two seconds you're rolling. There's no delay, the setup's there, it shoots in 4K, amazing for the size of it. One thing I really like about it is you just hit, you can hit the button three times, and it flips to selfie mode. Now, what's good about this compared to a smartphone setup on another gimbal is smartphones have two cameras. They've got the facing camera and the cameras that face away. And some of the newer smartphones that are a bit larger have two cameras, which is great because the second one's a two times zoom, which is helpful in some scenarios to give a different perspective. But when you use the camera that's in selfie mode facing you, rarely, at least my iPhone 8 Plus, does not have a 4K camera. It's back to HD. Whereas this device, obviously because the head just pivots when you hit it three times, or it takes a photo, or hits recenter, now it flips. <laughs> Face track is on automatically, and you're ready to roll. And again, in seconds, you can flip back and forth. Not even, one second. So it's a cool little device. I personally wish it was twice as big because I could fit it in my pockets and would handle a little better. The screen on it is quite detailed. It's small, but is functional and effective. I personally would like it a little bit bigger, but I guess this way it can fit in virtually any pocket. I also want to touch on that with that, we talked about this stuff with the Travel Tip podcast a few weeks ago. I ordered a power bank pack that can do up to like six super fast charges. It's got the USB ports on it, and it fits in the pocket, fits in the backpack with the camera bag very easily. And Michael's, one of his best tips on that travel travel tip extravaganza podcast was the power strip. Now, this is a bit more of a power block, but it's still small. It's got the four. I ordered this off of Amazon right after our podcast and goes in my camera bag. Four USB ports on the end of it so that we can charge and run hard drives, everything in one place while traveling in a hotel or somewhere like that where the number of outlets may be restricted or not at a convenient location. So all that ties into the little Osmo Pocket and hopefully the adventures that'll be at hand in the next couple of days. We've got three days of high pressure coming up. So I'm hoping to get some blue sky, fresh snow and red foxes and pine martens. So it's all going forward from here, but yeah, it was an interesting day today. Well, I think that pocket is pretty it's it's little but i think you'll get the hang of it pretty quick it just takes some playing around with it just to figure out what works but everybody that i talked to that have that's used it they love the quality so right that's i think amazing. it's just a matter of using it and trying it now, out and finding what really works one of you two guys already got your bluetooth module right i have not received anything so that order's been in okay since january i thought I yeah, I thought somebody had sent a picture of filters. That they had, had received filters. that package. Oh, is yeah, that I got some filters, but I didn't. I haven't even. I tried to order it, but every time I do, it says it's on right. back, back order. Yep. I'm waiting. Yeah, it was supposed to be in February, and I still haven't heard anything. So I haven't been charged for it, but it was like another hundred and forty dollars Canadian for the three items that came with it, and the Bluetooth is the one of most interest. Yeah. So that we can position it somewhere and and move off from it for animal stuff or just at a distance if we're by ourselves we can set it up that way yeah so i don't know if it's actually come out and we can't 
they just can't make them fast enough or if they're just not even out yet. I don't know either. I mean, they were available yes. to order through, and it wasn't even through the company. It was through a, a retailer in Canada here in Toronto that I ordered it from, pre-ordered. Right. As far as I know, they're not they're not yet released still. I thought maybe that that had happened, but I didn't pay close enough attention to the picture, I guess. So what <laughs> with, with the uh, lenses, what's going on there with the filters? So what inspired you to order those? And even though you haven't played with them yet, I mean, what's the appeal of them? So it's the same that we've always talked about. When you put a neutral density filter, you're going to cut that light. And it's going to force the camera to shoot at a slower shutter speed and give you a more film-like look. So you're going to shoot slower shutter speed, probably a lower aperture. You're going to get that depth of field. If you don't put a neutral density on there and you go out and really sun, uh, sunny, snowy day, everything's going to be in focus, right? which is fine. I mean, it doesn't matter too much, but... We'll give you a different look. So the filters, it looked like it was a set of half a dozen different filters. Is that right? That's exactly right. There was uh, six of them, and they're itty-bitty. I mean, you just don't realize how small all this stuff is till you get it. The picture on the box makes them look fairly large, but then you pull them out, and that's why when I sent a picture to you guys, I put a penny with it so you could actually see the the size difference. It's it's itty-bitty little stuff to clip on there. I should just put them up on our video. I will. Let me step aside. You guys talk real quick, and I'll grab them. I just got to grab them from the other desk here. It looks like they just go right over the end of the lens. Yeah, on the fit pocket. Just right, right on the end cap. Yeah. Yep. Obviously, there's nowhere to slide in. just fits over top. Mm -hmm. So that's cool if it doesn't result in any distortion, and it gives you some different presentation. How much were they? You know, I think these were like 50 bucks. For the kit. I'm not sure. Yeah, for the kit. It just comes in a little package like this, and you can see three of them. Mm -hmm. But it's got a little uh, cleaning cloth in front of the other ones. But, no, anything DJI, you always want to put a filter on it if you can. So if you're playing a drone, if you're using the Osmo, or if you're using not the Osmo Pocket, but the Osmo, the other Osmo versions that have the X5 camera, anytime you can run a neutral density, you're going to be way better off. If you're after that really filmy-like look. Why not? Well, especially in, in harsher light, it would help too, would it not? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but there, I mean, that is so small. Mm -hmm. It's about as big as my finger now. Did you try to mount one onto the pocket yet? Did they just clip on? Or, okay, not even play your heart. <laughs> I've Future had that. Podcast. Stay tuned for yeah, that. Stay tuned. I haven't, I haven't even downloaded footage off my pocket yet. This one, so this is the first time I've actually opened it up, but it has variable, so you can have a variable ND, which aren't so great. I've never had luck with variable NDs. Um, side note, I was, we were doing a shoot with these guys running Inspire the other day, and they make variable NDs for that camera. It's the X7 camera from DJI. So you can basically dial in. Everybody knows, well, most everybody knows what a variable ND is. It gives you that rip, that range just by twisting like a polarizer almost. But it just doesn't really work. I mean, you, you're having more pieces of glass in front of this lens, right? So if you can figure out what straight up ND you want, that's always going to be better than some sort of variable. But it really limits you. You know, if you're familiar with a matte box that goes on the end of a camera, uh, video camera you know and it's just basically plates of nd that you'll put in front 
that's awesome, but you're limited to that plate. So if you have time, it's great. Wildlife, it's kind of tough because things change so much, you might not have enough light if you're going from shadows to bright. That's cool. It'd be fun to play with those. Yeah, I think so. So I, I wanted to take a step back and just explain for those people that we have talked about this quite a bit on podcasts around the beginning of the year, the pocket, and the importance of it is just for storytelling. And it's such an effective tool, and for its size, like you say, the, the footage that come off, comes off of it is amazing, the 4K quality. But it allows you to tell your story on your trip so easily. It's right at your, anywhere you want to carry it on your in your jacket and ready to go in two seconds. So if something very interesting is happening, you can film it, or you can just stop and, and tell a story for your family or friends when you get back to make a video of the adventure, or, and there's various settings you can put on, on it as well. So that's the purpose of it. It's for creating our YouTube vlogs. So when we go along on our trips and whatever might be happening, we're filming bears along a river and we could be taking pictures or Michael could be filming and I could take, you know, a few minutes off of photographing and film him with the pocket so easily. It's so accessible and tell the story to share with all of you. So that's the excitement around these cool little devices that are so quick to fire up and get rolling and create such a high quality output. So it's for social media mostly, but very impressive now. Look forward to experimenting with it. I'll tell you the biggest problem that I've had with mine is they are so light and so compact that I forget I have it. <laughs> and so <laughs> when those moments are there, I think about it after the fact sometimes. So, yeah, it it's fantastic. You don't, you wouldn't know it was there unless you, unless you're consciously thinking about it. So if you're going to mount it on a, you know, you could even mount it like on the strap of a backpack. Um, when you're going out on a hike and it's right there available for you at all times. So I would just say keep it somewhere where it's accessible, but where it's not going to fall out because they are small. And I would imagine if you were to lose one, they'd be pretty tough to relocate. That's true. Yeah, they disappear in the field pretty quickly. Yeah. Think about that. You put it on your backpack strap facing forward so it's right at your hand so if you want to use it you can but you could also if you're hiking up the mountain to film bighorn sheep do a time lapse set it on time lapse yeah, exactly getting your hike and yep. just let that thing roll and and your whole story is there it's all compressed and it shows people what you did that day and then of course you have the images to build around that it'd be a lot of fun yep. i did see a little thing that it makes a little like clamps to your backpack strap and then you just put it in there so if you were going to do that time lapse that'd be kind of cool yeah yeah i guess that's more of a hyper lapse hands are free right you don't have to carry it in front of you i'm just want right. i want to get a stand that i can position it on the ground somewhere you know and i've seen mounts now so they're there are mounts that are compatible with the gopro systems so we have various tools for gopro cameras that we mount i've got stakes to put in the ground and different things you can mount on your hat and different things but there's the same mounting system that screws in for the gopro there's one but the only when i i looked up a review and of course here's a hack whenever you want to buy a new product google reviews on it and see what people have to say who have already used it it this mount just hugs the bottom of the osmo pocket does it well so that the osmo pocket doesn't fall out but if, for some weird reason it compromised the audio by having it in this little holster on the bottom of the pocket because that's where the yeah that's where the microphone is so yep. that was unfortunate so but it would still you know it was it was a relatively cheap 
device and it would then allow you to mount to your GoPro things. It could be a little mini tripod, you know, you've got those bendable tri or a clamp to a tree. So as long as it, the audio wasn't relevant, if it was to do with a B-roll of hiking past or an animal walking past like a, a moose or something, then it would be okay. But if I, it's too bad that it compromised the audio because in some situations it'd be nice to walk past yourself, you know, and, and telling a story. But mind you, we'll be recording that in a in audio separately. But this week's show is focusing on dynamic wildlife photography. But before we roll into that, we're going to do this week's pro tips and the question of the week. So my pro tip for this week has to do with ground blind setup pop-up ground blinds and, and some people I mean some situations you can have a permanent ground blind where you build something but it really doesn't make sense nowadays because pop-up ground blinds are so easy to use so easy to transport and are relatively inexpensive and there's so many variations out there you can get ones that you can camp in overnight if you need to ones with multiple ports ones with room to stand up in all depends on what your scenario allows for and of course there are many wildlife situations where blind is not necessary whatsoever but there are those where blind is the difference maker for success. So what I do is I have a couple of different pop-up blinds depending on the situation. They are simply in a pack that sling over your shoulder, lightweight, you can carry them in. Uh, another one is a backpack with two straps so it doesn't interfere with anything. Light enough to carry in one hand if you've got a camera pack on. But I don't carry them at the same time on my way in because I set up my ground blinds ahead of time especially if I'm working on private property where it's safe to set it up. Because the point is, if you need a ground blind, it means your subject's nervous, skittish, wild, in the truest sense, and won't tolerate your presence, whether it's physical movement, whether it's odor, whatever it might be, you want to do your best to conceal yourself. So the trick is to start at least a week ahead of time, maybe two weeks if, if you have the opportunity, and put your ground blind in place. Put it in so it might be springs coming up. So wild turkeys will be strutting any day, hopefully before the snow melts to capture some of those unique images. Turkeys, you know, when photographing these birds, these wild birds, uh, scent is not a big deal for turkeys, but movement is. Sound isn't a big deal, but movement, they're the keenest, sharpest eyes out there and you could be 100 yards away and scratch your forehead and, and that's game over, they're gone. So ground blind is an effective tool to get in position. They get accustomed to it quite quickly. So it's a matter of positioning one where it can be tucked into some vegetation, into some shrubbery. I definitely avoid putting a blind out in the middle of anything open. It makes it obvious. Tucking it into, into vegetation somewhere near the corner of a field where you know where the animals are active. They have a routine. So this is where the previously discussed trail cameras that we talked about on a, another podcast can be an effective tool to figure out where to position your ground blind. But you tuck it into the vegetation, but don't stop there. Bring some pruning shears, cut off some branches and some zip ties and fasten some branches around or other vegetation to hide it even better. And this is especially important in autumn for white-tailed deer who do notice everything in their world. A new ground blind, they will find it. They will come up to it. They will smell it. They will see it. But the more it's blended in with the vegetation and brushed in, the quicker they'll get accustomed to it and relax. And it will take days at least. So put a ground blind out at least a week ahead of time, more if you have the opportunity, and brush it in. And that gives it a 3D effect too by having branches around it. Even though these ground blinds 
typically have camouflage printing on them, it's not the same as having these branches sticking out. It will blend in much faster and have the animals get used to it so you'll have better success. That's my pro tip for this week. That's a good tip. I like it. It's good timing right now for, especially if you're going to be out doing turkeys because you pretty much need a blind when you're doing turkeys. Yeah. And the, the one exception to the open country is grouse don't seem to be bothered by it. They're bothered by the movement, of course. Um, but you can, you can set the blinds the day before the afternoon before being them in the morning. And if they're in open country, they don't, they're not bothered by it at all. Now I would, I would say you definitely are going to want more of a low profile blind. You don't want one of the big, uh, Oh, what would you say? The big pop-up blinds, dome, dome blinds. Yeah. Those are probably going to cause an issue because they do want some open ground. They are very susceptible to predation. So they want to be able to see. So you want something low profile, but it's not going to bother them too much. If you go out, set it up the day before, sleep in it, get there early, early in the morning and are in it and there's no additional movement. You're still going to be okay with grouse. From our experience last spring, I mean, it's important to stake it down really well in that kind of country, I would think, too, if you were going to leave it overnight, because who knows how the wind can change yeah. in 24 hours in Wyoming. Or you in and your 100 pounds of camera gear better be inside of that thing, or it might be gone. <laughs> so turkeys are like that, too. You could even set it up in the dark before that day if you knew where they're going to come out. It's more deer. And the other thing I want to caution, so turkeys, you can buy a new blind and have it set up that day. And, and anything new you buy from a box store of any sort or ordered online is going to smell. It'll have a plastic smell. The birds won't care. But you don't want to buy that and then 24 hours later try to use it on white-tailed deer or elk or wherever yeah. it might be. It's not going to work because it smells so strongly of plastic. So in that case, it's a matter of purchasing one and setting it up, uh, opening it up out of the pack whether it's somewhere you haven't, you can put it in your house, you know, or somewhere scent free and just let it air for a few weeks before you're using it on animals that are sensitive to smell. Rely on their nose to survive every day. They pick up on that new stuff. So air it out before using it for animals like white-tailed deer in autumn or any time of year. Good points. So I've had, and, and we've talked about it before and it, when you try to talk about it on an audio podcast, it gets a little bit difficult. But talking about, you know, working the light, um, different angles, quality of light, all those things. And I've had several people ask me, how can I learn to see the light? How can I learn to read the light? And what I'm going to tell you is something goofy coming from a wildlife photographer. But go to your camera store, find out three or four of the people that are the best studio photographers in your area and go and just observe them and learn because studio photographers have to create their own light. And so they can, you know, the way they position light, the way that they time it, obviously it's going to give them the effect that they want. So they're always creating their own, but they can see ahead of time the type of light, the quality of light that they want, and also learn to work with the ambient light that's available to them, to work with that to achieve the result that they want to achieve. So I would say talk to a studio photographer and, and just sit back and observe. You don't have to be part of the process. Get their permission, of course, but just sit back and observe them while they work. You're going to learn to see light in a way that you're not necessarily going to pick up 
very quickly. I mean, eventually you will if you spend enough time in the field, but you're going to see it, learn to see it a lot quicker if you go in somewhere where everything is controlled and just see why they use light in the way that they use it and how they, uh, you know, how they set their camera to achieve the results that they want to achieve. And the other thing that I would say on top of that is we've talked about uh, workshops and we've talked about doing the research. One thing, if you want a workshop or if you're going to go talk to the studio photographer that we're talking about, not all photographers are good teachers. Sometimes they're just good photographers. So try to find somebody that not only you're going to get along with, your your personalities are going to mesh well, but also that when you listen to them, you're, you're learning something. They're, they teach in the way that they talk. And I think that 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 goes for workshops as well as, as what I'm talking about here, talking to the studio photographer to learn about light specifically. There has to be workshop uh, opportunity as well in the field with other um, professional or, or accomplished photographers where they can teach light, you know, absolutely within, within yeah. close proximity, you know, to travel across the country, find something that or, or a mentor or, you know, if, if you know of somebody who's successful, I mean, that's how mm -hmm. I, I had the good fortune that way to, to, company somebody who was already professional and many trips we did together and basically taught me what good light was and and, and to add on to that one thing to avoid as far as what is bad light for photography you know the worst scenario and of course digital gives us more flexibility we have more power in post than film ever gave us but it's just simply you've got the first few hours of the day on a on a clear day on an overcast day you can play all the, all day long on a clear day, you've got the first few hours of the day and the last few hours, typically throughout the year, that is good light. When you get in the middle of that, so if sunrise is at 6 a.m. by 10 a.m., odds are, odds will be that the light is now what we call harsh. The colors are diluted, everything's gray and brown and flat. But the biggest challenge about harsh light is not just the fact that the pictures look dull color-wise. The sun is so high in the sky, it's shooting straight down. So the shadows become stark. The ears of an animal shadow its face. The eye has no catch light in it because the sun is directly above. And you've got this dark black eye, which is done. No, Don't even take the photo. So that's something to consider, too, to back off in a, in a beginner's perspective. is just on a sunny day to avoid those the six hours around the midday because the sun is simply too high in the sky. And you can experiment. I mean, that's a, the joy of digital. Go out there. Take a picture of your dog or your son or your daughter or your partner out under in, in some nice light in the morning and do it in the same spot at high noon. And you'll quickly see the powerful difference that light has and what bad light is. So that's why we time it. And yet something yep. as well. I mean, early and late is better for as far as nature and wildlife photography. Animals and birds of all sorts are typically more active early and late than through the day as well. So it's better to be out there, not just because of the light, but the results you'll get. Absolutely. Well, I would add to that. Um, you want to watch these feeds too. If you watch somebody's, someone that really is good with light and you watch their feed, you'll be able to pick out those pictures and then you can kind of dissect that to figure out, well, how did I do that? Our good friend, Jason, who was just on, well, who's on our podcast, what, a month ago or two months ago or something like that. Mm -hmm. Watch his feed, it you know, or anyone, Mark's, Ron's, 
watch these feeds because you'll see how they use the light. And they'll, they'll use one picture that Jason just had was a duck coming in. Yep. Lit up really well, but the background was totally dark. And that is a really cool way to highlight that animal and that light that he had. But that is a special condition for sure. So that'll probably come up later in the podcast. Yeah, that's a good yes, one it will. to watch for that light scenario. All right, Michael, what's your pro tip for this week? So my pro tip, I've had this happen a couple of times. So, And you guys got to tell me if it's ever happened to you. You are in a spot and you're really excited. You're going out to get the good morning light, right? It's still dark. You leave. Your stuff's all packed up in your bag. And you head out and you're just playing with time, right? Because you can't shoot when it's dark, but you can kind of shoot when it starts to get a little bit light. But how many times do you run across something very early on and you haven't even pulled your camera out of the bag? And beyond that, if you have pulled your camera out of the bag, have you actually set up the settings for that time? So I would say my tip is, and what I've started, what I've been doing for years, but before I ever leave in the car, I get it set up, set my settings. I'll set a pretty high ISO because you just never know, you know, but I don't really ever go over 3,200. Get out in the field and then you're kind of ready. Your settings are ready because you can miss that one or two seconds that is very, very special to get that shot just because you didn't have your shot ready or your camera ready and then the shot's gone. So it's happened to me a lot, but I've been really working at trying to make it so that it doesn't happen and I have my stuff ready the minute I leave. Sometimes you can leave your camera together in your pack too, which is, that helps, but you still gotta have the time to, <clears throat> excuse me, pull it out of your bag, get the shot. If you have it just laying right there and you, you can get access much faster. And I would, I would say just as an addition, it's not just in the morning. So anytime the lighting scenario changes, take a meter reading and see where you're at. So if we go from out in the open to now we're, you know, when we were up in the northern Canadian Rockies, we're back in the timber following these moose trails. Take a meter, meter reading in, in, inside the forest because your light's going to be diminished. You're not going to have as much. And then you're, again, same as first thing in the morning. You're ready for that shot when the opportunity presents itself. I think this is a great tip. And I'm going to take it even one step further, and I'm glad you brought up moose, not just because of moose, but if, as soon as Michael started talking about being ready when you hit the road, once you leave to have your gear ready, I just thought of the morning in Alaska where it was raining and everything was covered with water, and I pulled around this corner, and there's this magnificent moose coming through the Tega Forest, and I did not have rain pants on. I didn't have my hiking boots on. I had my running shoes on. And he was just traveling. So to get the foliage was popping in color, hopped out, wanted to meet up with him, photograph him, only took time to change into my hiking boots, didn't change my pants. And as we all experienced, went 50 <laughs> yards and drenched. So knowing that the, the foliage was so wet and it was a drizzly morning, you know, somebody who's been doing this for 25 years should have known enough to put on his rain pants and his hiking boots as he got into the vehicle and was ready to be on whatever was required, right? The hope was to be shooting, not to be sitting around. So live and learn. That's well, that's the deal. I mean, that's the, you gotta be ready. And I, I've been doing it just as long too, and it still happens. You just, 
So not only is it the camera, you do have to, I wasn't even thinking about that, but your clothing, like I never leave without, I never go with my tennis shoes. I have buddies that'll, oh, I'm going to, we're going to drive for a while. So I'm going to drive in comfort and then I'll put them on when I get there. I've always erred on, you know what? I'm just going to put them on right now because if something happens, I want to be ready to get that shot. So I think it's something to. Yeah. We all kind of got caught that day. I mean, a a chicken's got a brain that big, but they know to cover up in the rain, right? (laughs) Well, it's excitement huh. of getting out there, right? The light it is. is nice. Yep. It's a beautiful morning. It's the anticipation of finding something. We and we expect. So the plan is to drive somewhere and then to and then to pick a high point, hike to it, glass, find an animal, hike to the animal. And in this situation, that didn't happen because we never. It happened sooner, and we weren't ready. I wasn't ready. So you know, if we were going to go to that high point, the glass, I knew I would have pulled off, parked the vehicle, changed my gear. Okay. But it happened faster, and I, sh- yeah, after all these years, should know better. So that's a great pro tip. <laughs> and how many times does it happen just even driving, where you camera's not ready, yeah. and oh, you come around a corner and there's a wolf, or there's a bear, or there's a moose, or whatever it is. Our north, right? You should always be ready. Yeah, it's a little different when I'm riding my bike. You know, I'll have everything in a pack, and so you just hope that you have time when you get there to actually put your pull your camera out of your pack, but. When you're in a car, there's no excuses. You should just have it all right there, ready to go. So here's another hack that I'm going to do a shout out to my good buddy Greg, who came up with this idea, and I'm I'm, I'm sh- maybe not the first one to come up with it, but his setup was kick butt. And if he doesn't have a passenger in his truck with him, he's got this foam cutout strapped into the passenger seat with his telephotos and cameras, so he can just grab them, lift them out of the foam, and he's ready to go. And they're insecure that way. They're not rolling around and they're not zippered in something, but they're in this, you know, a six inch deep foam cutout for his 500 or whatever he has and right at, right at his arm's length. Way to start the day. If you're in the yep. far north in a vehicle and have that kind of potential, I mean, in caribou country, you just don't know where you'll see something. So. Oh, well, and how many times if you don't have that foam cutout, have you set the camera on the back seat or on the front seat and you come around a corner, you slam on the brakes and there goes the camera off into the. Don't Floor ask board? those questions, Michael. Don't ask. <laughs> it's happened. I mean, or you, especially if it's in the back. If you have a passenger and it's in the back seat and you slam on the brakes, you hear it and you're like, oh, mm-hmm. I hope everything's all right. You know, generally is if you're using the cameras we use, but you never know. I've had it happen a couple of times. Once off the back, once off the front. <laughs> and and uh, everything was fine. But yeah, for sure. So that foam mount. That's a, uh, That's a ticket. Changer. Yeah, you need that. Why not? I mean, it, you could make that in no time. All right, so this week's question of the week comes from Ray on Instagram, and his question is, he would love to hear us walk through our digital workflow from taking the image to the final copy that's ready for post or publication or print. Step-by-step step from card through our editing programs of choice, if possible. So we're going to answer this relatively quickly because we recognize this could be a whole podcast or a series of YouTube vlogs to highlight how we do this effectively. But I believe this question is good enough that it's worth addressing and worth answering. And I know that there are variances out there. There are so many effective programs and workflows and everybody develops a system that works for them. This is what I do. And of course, everything as far as still photography is captured in raw format right out of the gate 
everything's raw. Then I open it in Adobe Bridge or Camera Raw, well, Adobe Bridge first, and then I, I see all the images I can as a film strip, and that way I can go through the, the 10 similars and see the large versions, pick the one that's the best, open it in Camera Raw, zoom into 100% to verify it's tack sharp, then I open it in Photoshop. And in Photoshop, I make my adjustments, actually, sorry, in Camera Raw, I make some adjustments to saturation and to brightness and sometimes the white balance as well. And then I'll open it in Photoshop and make changes again to saturation or any other elements that I need to adjust in the image. And then I'll save it as a TIFF file because a TIFF file can be opened, resaved, opened again and not lose any data, any quality to the image. But the TIFF file is of course not what I deliver to clients or to any print manufacturer. Is always a high-res JPEGs. So the print, when I make the folder of TIFF images, I will also make a folder of high-res JPEG images at 300 DPI, and then another folder of low-res JPEG images that are watermarked for my clients for viewing and for submissions. So in summary, that's my workflow. And I have that's to pretty get quick. used to us recording these video podcasts, so I'm not looking at my <laughs> microphone and I look at the camera. <laughs> After doing all audio podcasts, for some reason when I get in the zone and start telling a story, I'm looking at the microphone envisioning our wonderful audience out there, and that's who I'm talking to, not the two handsome gentlemen facing me on the screen. Right. Now that we're doing video as well as audio, I'm going to look at the little green dot as much as possible. <laughs> and it's hard to do, and tonight I'm switching. Missy was busy, so she couldn't do anything, so I'm looking at which camera I have to go to, which full screen, middle screen. So I probably look not so good because I'm not paying attention. Getting either. dialed in. Yeah. Yep. So, Ron, so or Ron, what's your workflow? It's it's similar. I mean, like you said, little variances here and there. Um, when I'm done with a shoot, I'll come back and I import into Lightroom. Um, I, I will do my initial... This, the same as what you do in bridge. I'll do my initial deletes. Um, and this is obviously if we're not in the field, do my initial deletes, go through, um, find out the, or find the images that I want to save, delete the rest. And then I'll make my three backups, the backup on the external one that I take to work. It's not in my house. One that stays in my house. And then I've got three copies of those images that I want to save. I'll go do my initial edits all in Lightroom. If it's a similar light scenario, then I'll just sync all the settings. So I I basically batch process pretty quickly, um, and, but those are just initials. And then I'll do any fine tuning to the ones that I'm, especially the ones that I'm gonna use for uh, prints. I'll do my fine tuning, fine edit. Sometimes I'll round trip it into Photoshop and then bring it back into Lightroom. It's a really quick process, but then those images stay cataloged in Lightroom. Then I'll go through and do my keywording. If I have, if I haven't done that on import, um, keyword, you know, species, time of year, what kind of behaviors, if I have specific behaviors in some shots, so that I can go through and search those quickly, and then I'm I'm just ready to move on to the next the next batch. Uh, it's a, it's a, a lot longer process than what that just made it sound, but that kind of simplifies it. 
It's a good thing three of us are talking about this because, you know, I didn't mention the backups. That's good, you know, to have at least two backups, one off-site preferably as well. And with the cost of hard drives, external hard drives, it only makes sense to do that nowadays. And then also the keywording I forgot to bring up too. So yeah, once I've made my TIFFs, I'll keyword through Bridge. That's how I do it. And I'm sure Mike will talk about the stuff that I forgot because I know there's a, a rating system that he uses and I use both. So <laughs> pressure's on. This is so hard to, to distill that down into a little concise way to do it. I think for me, it's it's all raw to the card. In the field, it goes from the card to a hard drive. And I do all my backups in the field. So I make multiple copies. I leave it on the card if I can. If I have enough space, I'll put it on two hard drives. And then I generally don't look at anything in the field, especially if I'm local. If I'm in Alaska or if we're in Canada or something, and you know you got a really good shot, sometimes you want to go play with that one shot. But normally, I don't do anything until I get back to the office. Once I'm back to the office, I'll transfer on the travel drive, I'll transfer to a big drive, which is a big RAID drive that has all the images I've ever taken. Once it's there, that's when I'll open it up in Lightroom. And then I don't use Photoshop ever. I haven't opened up Photoshop in five years. So I'll just make all my changes in Lightroom. I don't even export anything other than a JPEG to put up on the webpage, and that's it. And generally that JPEG it's a high-res JPEG that'll go to the website. If it's going to an editor, they can download that high-res JPEG, and that can be used almost for most things. If somebody's going to do something big, like you talked about on the last podcast, if they want a big billboard or something, then it's a. will have to go back into that RAW and export something much bigger. But that's it in a nutshell. It's Everything's done in Lightroom. And the websites now, and, and our websites function that way too, and we upload a high resolution JPEG to the website, it automatically watermarks it and creates a low resolution for presentation. So the watermark protection's there, but if a client orders the high res, of course the watermark is not there. Or order print. Yeah. The the advanced stuff is, you know, go through, do your use your rating system. You know, for me a five star is that's gonna be a print worthy image. Uh three star is is a solid image, might be used for stock. One star is, yeah, but it's going to need some work. I might hang on to it just in case, but it's not one that jumps off the page at you. And then the other thing that you can do in Lightroom, to this is more advanced stuff that this would make the whole podcast, is you can send them directly to your website from Lightroom, or you can send them to Instagram from Lightroom, all that kind of stuff. So th those are some advanced things, and we'll probably have to bring Missy on to talk about some of that. She's the the Lightroom genius. Um, but there's a lot of things that you can do in all of these programs um, that makes your life easier. Yeah, I think we should probably do a full-on episode at some point, but it would be better to do it in the field where we actually record it on the Osmo, where you can actually, we yep. could condense it down, we could shoot it with the Osmo, show every step, and then it would be a concise little video that would probably tell the tale. Absolutely. We, I just wanted to cover this and just give an idea of what we do and what software we use to answer Ray's question. I mean, and Ron is working on an awesome YouTube vlog to illustrate his workflow. So we hope tuned. it'll be awesome. So stay tuned to our <laughs> YouTube channel and subscribe there if you're not already, because when the things get posted, you'll receive notification 
and it's free and then you'll see what Ron does on a video vlog for his workflow. So I want to thank Ray for this week's question of the week and if our audience is interested in us getting into this in more detail to let us know and we can we can certainly do that. So we encourage our listeners to send in any questions that you may have no matter whether you're a beginner or an expert and we will do our best to answer all of them and feature one as the question of the week. So this week's podcast is about dynamic wildlife photography. So this means creating images that tell a story, reveal behavior for the greatest impact. So static images and portraits have their place, but I'll tell you after doing this for 25 years, they cannot compete with movement, with behavior, with telling a story about wildlife. In fact, I've had editors tell me over the years that if a, if a prospective photographer who wants to work with them sends them a submission and it's all static, they don't touch it. Some of them don't because wildlife behavior is more challenging to get. And often with editorial content, they're telling a story. So the behavior has to match up with the written content to illustrate visually what they're trying to describe. So of course, uh, there are static image uses in any medium or any publication. But again, for editorial, they need to tell the story. So if they're talking about, you know, the moose rut, they got to have moose fighting and have a behavior image. And it's, it doesn't fly just to have a portrait. So today, we're going to go through, and each of us are going to highlight four wildlife behavior scenarios that we look for when we're in the field, why we look for them, and how we capture them to share that behind the scenes insight with you. Very good. Michael. Uh, don't, don't, you don't know, you don't want to start with that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So a really simple one that I always do, and especially with the big charismatic megafauna, is it's that walking shot. And I've always got that that image where you actually see that motion where that arm's coming up. That's kind of a shot that I always have to get. And I always want to show that as over a portrait any day. But it requires being in the right spot or having the right right setting you, they got to be almost be coming at you to get that really dynamic image but you see that movement right the minute you see the image you see that movement so for dynamic it's one of the easiest ones to get and it's something that i try to get right off the bat anytime I, i'm in that situation it's just timing and waiting for it too right i mean if an animal's in nice light you're going to take the portraits but you know at some point it's going to move it's going to step forward and as soon as you see that shoulder start to go and it's going to lift that leg, whether it's a bear and it lifts its paw up so you can see its claws or, you know, it's an elk and you can see its hoof as it's walking. I mean, so much more appeal. Just that little bit of movement can make that difference to an image. And I think it's we've talked about this before on the podcast, but it's predicting that movement, too. So if you know animals going this way and your your profile or you're like shooting at the side of the animal. Yeah, perpendicular. You kind of want to move over a little bit if you can. If the situation is in such, you can kind of get that. And that's what I'll do first is I'll, unless there's some really special lighting thing going on that you just have to stay where you're at, I'm always going for that shot first. So for dynamics, if you look at my Instagram page too, I think I really work hard at never putting a portrait up there. It's always got some sort of movement in it. So I think 
that's what I'm going to use for this whole discussion today is going through some of these images that I put up that there's always something going on. That's good. And for composition for beginners, with that scenario too, when you have an animal, it's either walking through the frame or just starting to walk or move to leave more space in front of the animal. Whether it's a horizontal or a vertical, to leave more space in front than behind because you want to tell the story where the animal's going to and not where it's been. That just has psychologically more appeal, right? So yep. line it up. And, and by pivoting that way, if, if the situation allows it, like Michael was saying, to allow create a bit of a quartering toward to see the front of the animal and then leave space in front of it in the image. Cracker Jack. Yep. Okay, Ron, what's yours? Um, my first one is uh, inclement weather. And, you know, we all know, we, <laughs> we all know that these animals live through some harsh realities. But some of the best shots that I have are you know, in snowstorms, uh, you go up to to places like the Colorado Rockies where you can photograph mountain goats, and to get above the clouds and to see that interaction, the the changing light and even the changing scene, because you take a stagnant, stationary scene, but you add those clouds that are moving all the time, and now all of a sudden you're you've got a different shot every time you click the shutter. Um, so find those opportunities for inclement weather, very, very cold days. The days that you're going to want to stay inside are the days that are nice to be out. Um, one of my favorite shots is uh, actually of some geese. They were just down on the river in town, but it was 28 below zero. Everybody else is home. I threw my five millimeter waders on, had um, long johns on underneath. I was plenty warm. I had wool on top. I had my mad bomber hat on. I was not going to get cold. I got the visual. You got it now? Yeah, yeah. thank you. In my long johns. <laughs> <laughs> but these geese came flying in. Most of them were just sleeping on the ice, on this ice shelf. But this group of geese, four or five geese came flying in. And when they came in, not only did you get the flight shot, but it was so cold that coming from you know, up in the air as high as they were initially, all their heads were frosted over. So these black heads of these geese are just completely frosted as they flew into the to the sleeping geese that were on the ice. And so it, it was just neat to not only photograph the behavior, but also the harsh reality that those things have to deal with on a on a daily basis in the winter. And the cold weather is for breath for mammals is worth being out as well put up with the cold dress yeah. properly for it and to get backlit breath coming out of an elk on a really cold frosty sunrise or any ungulate for that matter or a bear whatever it might be um guy i know matt on instagram had an amazing picture of a whitetail i made it on a cover that i saw recently with backlit breath and it was the same scenario it was like 20 below or something yeah. So you had to get out in those weather scenarios. And it tells the story, like you said. I mean, these animals are have evolved to survive this. You know, they're not uncomfortable. We are, unless we're, you know, to dress for it. But it's, it's some of my favorite yep. experiences have been on those super cold mornings. But capturing the elements, yeah, it tells the story of their world. That's a good one. Yep. I think that should be, like, almost number one. 
you know. It was my number one. <laughs> I mean, overall, out of all of these, out of all of ours, that could be number one. Okay, so my my first one, I'm going to jump in and just make it a quick. I don't know if this is fair. I I can't help myself, but make it like a little multi one for antlered ungulates. And there's so much that happens in September. So when you get out there and you're photographing any of these antler species, so we're, we're talking about elk, we're talking about moose, caribou, white-tailed deer, mule deer. When they sh shed the velvet, when they rub and peel the velvet off their antlers, their testosterone levels spike and they become far more active in a short period of time because they have this tight mating season coming up where they have to accomplish all of their breeding within a week or two. When they shed the velvet from their antlers, it's time for action. And when you're in the field, you have to know animal behavior to be a successful wildlife photographer. And one of the blessings for antlered ungulates would be that they all behave similarly. They all thrash or rub things, they spar. So it's a matter of watching these animals and what they're going to do with their excite, their new headgear, that solid bone. There's no, ner no nerve action in there anymore. They don't feel anything, but they want to put these to use. They want to mark their territory, rub trees, thrash rubbery, and spar with one another. So not only do you have the opportunity to potentially document velvet shedding, but when you're in the field, look for these other behaviors and try to capture those as well because it tells the story a big part of the story why they grow these antlers each year of course you know there's a seasonal differences but most of the use the functionality occurs in early and mid-autumn so by understanding that you look for that and it's far more striking than just a portrait when you have animals doing things with their crowns that they've grown for that purpose the velvet shedding is only a 24 to 48 hour process so if you get that moose and elk late august into the very beginning of september but mostly late august and white-tailed deer and mule deer beginning of september caribou beginning of september but the trick is only is to get it when it happens because it's only 24 to 48 hours and why it's so quick is the velvet's dried up the functionality's done the antlers are solid bone the velvet nourished antlers with blood to grow that bone now that it's dried they rub it off but when they rub it off it gets in their face and especially for an animal like moose there's so much material it gets in their face and they can't see which is a huge irritant for a prey species they're vulnerable they need to be able to look even an 1800 pound alaska yukon bull moose still has to watch for predators and when this velvet's hanging down it impedes that sense so they thrash and get it out of the way as quickly as possible so it really is a narrow opportunity to capture that behavior and to go even further into that when they shed their antlers are still red. Now, again, there's no pain. People ask on Instagram when they see, when I put up a picture of an animal shedding velvet, I always get a few comments. Does it hurt? Oh no, that must hurt. No, it doesn't hurt because it's solid bone. The nerve endings have, have, are no longer going through the antlers, but the red color disappears in no time. Why? Because they keep thrashing shrubbery daily. And what's on the shrubbery every morning in September or late August do and it washes it so they're brown within 24 or 48 hours after shedding so it's something to time and really watch for because it's such a cool behavior that marks a transition from growing these crowns to using these crowns and then as soon as the velvet's off they'll spar and they'll rub trees and they'll thrash shrubbery and you can watch for that behavior too 
One thing I'd add to that was I used to know, like in Colorado, you could go and almost bank on the third week in August to go get the velvet shedding. But it seems like it's changing over the last few years. It seems like it's almost a week later. So now it's like the fourth week. I don't know if that's something that I've just noticed around here, but I can almost bank on it that third week in August, that's what I'm going to do is go look for the the shedding of the velvet. But it's a little different now. So I don't know if you guys have experienced that or seen that or seen it being later. Well, we even caught one, a, a mature bull too this year uh, when we were up there late in the first week of September. And he, still, he was still in full velvet. And then we got, an, I don't know if it was a different one. I think it was a different bull. It was a little bit bigger uh, the next morning. And he still had the strands of velvet, still had blood on the antler. Um, he was just in the process. But that was, yeah, that was almost the end of the first week of September this year. So, yeah, I, I would agree with you. It's a good it was pretty late. Yeah, that's true. And it was, I've never seen a bull moose have in velvet as late as we had this year. And, you know, all the years of being up there, um, you know, Vic the biologist moose researcher for Alaska was for 30 plus years who was on a podcast last summer that we did on, you can find it through our site. Uh, I, he told me years ago, I think it was the 26th, 27th that most of them are the mature bulls will shed their velvet in August. So, I mean, there's a chance that could be pivoting. I mean, so it, they were later this year. Yeah. Saw, it, well, I've noticed it for the last, several years that it just it seems to be a little bit later just here in colorado well the but, ruts are later too i mean the whitetail rut here in eastern canada uh, would be a week and a half even two weeks later than it was decades ago so there could be some swing going on there and that bull in velvet he was he was already showing some interest in the cows i mean his antlers he, he was, was yeah. ready for action of course but the velvet just hadn't been rubbed off any time it would have been something i want to add to this as well with the capability of so many cameras now to do good video or good quality video would be when there's a sparring opportunity there's nothing that sounds wilder to do 30 seconds of video than two animals sparring and hearing those antlers clash the sound of bone on bone resonating is to make keep that in mind not just compositions and looking for the behavior but to also switch to video and capture some of that rare behavior you know, a caribou will rub, a shrub could rub it for 15 minutes, you know, and of course you time it, you wait for it to see its eye and the eye roll and get the right position as it's doing it and you blast away because it's digital, why not? But after you've blasted 493 pictures, switch <laughs> the video for a bit, right? <laughs> well, it does show so much better on video. I mean, it's really hard to get that perfect shot when it's stills, but... Video just tells that story so much better. Right. Come out with both if you can. You know, situations, moose will spar sometimes for half an hour. You know, yeah. Sometimes not. But I've had situations, my most memorable, the best photo opportunity I've ever had with two big bull moose sparring, we spotted them half a mile away and they were already sparring. And this was pre-rut, so they're just kind of sistered up for days, two similar age size bulls, and they'll keep each other company, and they'll spar numerous times a day for several days and then kind of go their own way, just building their own confidence. But we had, our fingers were crossed on both hands that we'd be able to make it down in time to capture this, this scene. Odds were against us because it would take us so long to get there, but they were still sparring when we got there, and we had about five more minutes, and it was unbelievable. The images we got, it was nice even light on a morning with color everywhere and two monster bulls so 
they'll do it for a while. So my point is, if you're there long enough, why not shoot it in video too now? Yep. Yeah. All right. Am I up? Yes. That's your next behavior you look for. I look for anthropomorphic. That's right, right? Yes, it is. I think so. Like, I'm, right, I'm spelling it out as you're doing this thing. I was like, anthropomorphic, anthropomorphic. Uh, you anthropomorphic, know, but, yes. And especially with bears. Um, but that means anthropomorphic means that it's it's related to human behavior. Exactly. Yeah. So it, it, bears, raccoons, I, I can't think of any, you know, obviously monkeys, that kind of thing, apes, that sort of thing. You can get great stuff. But all the pictures I have of bears doing something that you would see a, a human doing, those pictures sell right away. All right on. Guaranteed. If you, you know, I've got one of a, of a bear that's covering its eyes and it's really just brushing bugs away, but it looks like it's just sitting there thinking, contemplating, and that picture is sold several times. So anytime you can get that, that sort of behavior, that is, is a big, a big it. win for me. Wow. That's I didn't think about that, but it's true. I <laughs> one of the pictures that I've sold the most of—they're not, you know, big prints or anything, but smaller prints—is this beaver, and I I named the picture "Oh Damn" because it was a beaver, and he's just got one hand like I'm screwed, you know. That's just face palmed himself, and everybody loves that because they can relate to it. I think right. it's probably. Humor. more than anything else yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah this is a that, one. the picture that i that i that has sold the most is with that bear that i just explained i've sold it to a stock uh not uh some my the guy that does my wealth uh retirement stuff mm -hmm. he bought it for the bear market stuff so when he could send it out in emails and right. you know he's yeah, covering yeah. his eyes like oh my gosh the market's dying right. but i've also sold it to a guy who put it up in his bathroom so like the bears are not watching you do your thing. So, right, right. I mean, there's so many uses for that one picture and people just relate. So it's just one of those things. Yeah. Historically, the gift card market would is all, would be all over that stuff, right? That would have been good too. Yeah. Yes. There was, yeah, this comes to mind. So I, and bears too are, are one of the best ones for it. I have a picture of a sow and we had two big cubs, two-year-old cubs and there's, they're sitting side with well, one cub and her and the cub put its arm up like it's a rounder right yep mm -hmm. and that has been popular and another one was a grizzly i had that was sleeping and, and just watching him waiting for him to get up and do something and he was sleeping quite a ways off but he sat up and for some reason you could see a couple of claws and he was scratching the top of the head like he was thinking bear yeah right? <laughs> and i have a caribou i'll stop here sorry one more i have, I have a caribou <laughs> that yawned and i this one this happened on two occasions with caribou for me and i i've i've posted these on ins, on my instagram page and on our wild and exposed instagram page where they yawn but this to turn their head it looks like it's laughing its head off at me so i say i make a joke like i told the caribou i could walk across the tundra as fast as it could <laughs> and <laughs> people love the laughing caribou so you're right yeah that's a great one yeah look for that and make a connection psychologically with people that they identify right yeah. And I think, uh, you know, we're talking about all these pictures. Just come to the website and we'll have these pictures up so you can relate. And you can see the picture of the bear, the picture of the caribou, the picture of the beaver. We'll put all those on the website so you can see what we're talking about. Yeah, in the show notes for today's podcast. Yep. Where you'll find it. Right on. Yep. 
All right, Ron. So I think we're going to probably kill this one because this is all of our favorite time of the year, I would think, is uh, is the rut behavior. And even more than just rut, and this is something that I got called out on, and I'll give Jason Loftus credit because we had a long discussion about bighorn sheep and photographing the sheep rut and how, you know, when we're there, we're getting the good rut behavior, but we're not getting the fighting. I should know, we should all know better than most of the fighting occurs during pre-rut. When they're kind of establishing a pecking order, they're establishing dominance. Who's going to be that dominant bull, that dominant ram, buck, whatever the case may be. Most of that happens during pre-rut. On occasion, it happens, you know, right in the heat of the battle. But most of that fighting with those rams occurs during pre-rut. So don't just plan on being out there to get that rut behavior. Make sure you get out for the, you know, the two preceding weeks before the rut is going to start in full swing. And you're going to get a lot of that pre-rut behavior. The smaller bucks will keep kind of sparring throughout the the season. But the bigger bucks, they're kind of establishing territory, that kind of thing. So get out a little bit before if you want to focus on getting some of that fighting behavior. Um, sparring can look like fighting. You just have to be patient and wait till they, you know, they get a little bit more aggressive with it. When they just first kind of start to tickle the tines, uh, it doesn't really look that aggressive, but they will. They'll eventually start pushing into each other, and it can look like a full-blown fight, even though, you know, in the, the actual moment, you know, they're they're just sparring. But get out there for a few weeks before the rut, and you're going to see behaviors that you won't necessarily see once all the breeding activity begins. That's a good one. It's a good one. More behavior before. All right, my next one, I'm going to shock the audience. And I'm not going to talk about a mammal. This is a bird. And what? Yeah. Hello. Do you even look at birds? I do. I do. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I, I love birds. I, I love watching birds all the time. Photographing birds is not my niche, just because it's not my market. I'm opportunistic, but I don't sit out to target songbirds. But I love to see them. I love to hear them. And it's all part of the, the natural world experience to me. But I want to thank Mr. Ron Hayes for this cool experience last spring in Wyoming that I had with these dancing sharp-tailed grouse. They were so much fun and so entertaining. And it's just a matter, and, and quite tolerant in as far as, as long as we didn't move. And, you know, I borrowed one of Ron's ghillie suits and looked the height of fashion. Looked really good, <laughs> if you're a sagebrush. And would sit on the ground and the gross were around us and pounding their little feet in the ground, the males, as they're strutting on the lek to establish territory on the lek for the females to come through to pick the best male in their eyes. Hard for me to tell which best one was, but it was awesome to watch that behavior. Stomping their feet, the wings outstretched, the head down, and their little dance facing off to each other was a incredible experience that I have to thank you for that you shared with us and the images take me back to that morning because of the fun behavior now I know as much as I found it not necessarily humorous but it was fun to watch they're all business as much as oh yeah as much as they're colorful and beautiful with their feathers and what do you call the the colorful bellows or air sacs yeah on their necks beautiful but they're all this is 
competition for breeding and it's a serious affair for the grouse. But that behavior, to be able to document that instead of just a bird standing on the ground, or to me, even a bird flying by, to see them with their head down and two of them facing like two little fighter jets on the tarmac at each other was fun to watch and, and to capture. So that's one of the highlight ones. And knowing your expertise about knowing where to go, how to do it properly, not to disturb the lek and the birds by using the ghillie suits, being in there in the pitch black beforehand and to get these images waited out until they're all finished on the lek that morning and have left before we do. So they don't even know we're there theoretically. And then we leave was a ton of fun. Yeah, that was a good day. For sure. Being low was one thing. I mean, that was helpful with the ghillie suits just to sit right on the ground. And that was something we talked about too. You can get one of these backpacks. Uh, it was a turkey backpack, turkey hunting one, where you can slide out the seat. That's what they call them when you go looking for them in these stores. And there's a seat that slides out of the bottom, and then it has it strapped together so the back supports you. So you can lean back, and it's quite comfortable. But you're on the ground, so you're at eye level with these grouse that aren't very tall and able to get that perspective. So that's something to think about. And, and you're knowing that, that we could be on the ground, you had these backpacks ready, so our butt's not on the ground freezing. There was snow that day. It's padded, we can lean back and on eye level to capture the behavior. That was a lot of fun. Well, one of us could. <laughs> <laughs> the other the two. were important too. <laughs> the other two had our legs falling asleep and we, well, you had, we, you had I material think, draped over you to make a, a safe We did, line, yeah. Right? yeah. And it was fortunate that we had a raptor fly over and send those birds off so that we could wake our legs back up or I might still be up there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So my next one is leave the long lens at home. Oh, good one for behavior oh i know oh this is that's my okay that was my last one i think i know where you're going here yes all right, all right. i got to do another audible pick another one i have a bunch of them yeah go for it so Please. so much of the so much of the behavior is dictated by the habitat and i think you need to include the habitat i've been fortunate in several situations where i was set up just right with you know, I actually have to do, I have to leave the long lens because I always want to go. I'm most confident with that lens. I know what it's going to do. I know what it's going to look like. And I'm always going to shoot that. If I pick up a wide angle, I'm a lot of times, I'm, I hope this works or I hope I got this right. Or I hope it looks like I think I want it to look. But small animal, big topography or big habitat or big mountains. If I put up a picture like that on Instagram, I'll get way more comments on that than any other picture I put up. And I've gotten comments where people will say, it's so nice to see the habitat. It's nice to get away from just seeing that, that close-up shot of the animal, even though a lot of those pictures are, are great too. But they just want to see. A lot of people don't get a chance to go see the topography or the habitat or the mountains or whatever you're at. So if you can show that in your image, I think it just sets it apart and makes it a little different than what the norm is out there. That's a great tip. Yeah, any environmental portraits just show the world they live in. And it will only broaden any photographer's portfolio to add those. They tell the story right. of that world. So you want to capture that. So you need a small lens, a wide angle lens to do that. Or in some scenarios, you can get away with it with a zoom, with a zoom telephoto, depending on how far away the animal is from you right. or coming toward you. With the big bull we had 
last year shedding the velvet he started at quite a distance so we could start with an environmental portrait yeah, start with it opened up in toward us but I think the more dynamic shots are is if you have a wide angle. Now, this requires being somewhat close to the animal. So it really depends on the situation. And um, one of the ones that sticks out in my mind, and we'll put it in the show notes, but I was uh, photographing bears again. And they were fishing. And these bears were accustomed to people. It was a place where they're, it's like Katmai. And actually, we were in Katmai, but we weren't in the falls. And there was just a, a sow that just kept going up and down the river. And we were right on the side, we're right on the edge of the river. She'd walk right by us and she'd walk right by us. And so we're all getting these shots. And I got to thinking, okay, I'm gonna pull out a wide angle lens. So I laid down, I, I couldn't even get down to the viewfinder cause there's all these rocks. So I just set the camera on the side of the bank or on the side of the, the, the bank of the river, right next to the water, set it down kind of angled it where I thought I had a mountain mountains in it, the river in it. The sun's popping in it, and then you get this bear walking down, and it's, I don't know, I think it was a 24-millimeter lens, So, but she's big in the frame, so she was probably, I don't know, very close. Um, <laughs> but legal in this area where we were at, totally legal to be doing what we were doing. It's a lot like Lake Clark where you can get that close access, and um, you just, it's a whole different perspective on, on the bear image, so. The other thing that you can do, and I've tried this a lot, and it really requires the perfect scenario, but uh, I've tried this with doll sheep. So if you're, so with doll sheep, you're constantly worried about how much weight you're taking because you're packing yourself and all your gear way up on a ridge or way up in the mountain somewhere. So you tend to leave all that excess gear behind, right? You don't want to take an extra lens. You don't want to take an extra body. So a lot of times you just have your big lens. What I've tried is I've, I'll set up, like, here's the scenario with, with doll sheep, is you'll get a doll sheep that'll walk out on a, on a ledge, and you take that one shot that's kind of not an environmental portrait because you don't see a lot, but you don't do a close-up. You got whatever's around that animal. Take that shot, and then I'll move over, take another shot, move over, take another shot, and then I'll come back and stitch a panorama that ends up being, you know, could potentially be 10 feet wide, the animal is going to occupy, you know, a couple feet on the end, but then you get to see this vista and it's accomplished through stitching those images together to create what I'm talking about with the wide angle lens, only you're a ways away. So that is a really, it's super, you think it'd be easy to get, but it's really, it's not that easy. You have to have just that perfect spot. And then you have to be very careful if you're focused on the animal you can't adjust that focus when you start going over because everything's sure. going to be out of focus down the line. So you need to keep that look or else you got, so, I mean, you can kind of get the, the image of it. But, That's good. Yeah. The panorama can be stitched together that way, but yeah, I did. Yeah. The focus is something that you could blow it. If you didn't do that. Just turn your auto focus off and don't touch the focus ring. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, with the with the front buck button focusers, it'd be kind of tough because it's going to change. <laughs> but on the rear focus, but yeah, just the trick is you just turn it off and then switch it to manual and then try it out. I've got it to work a couple of times, but mountain it, you, sheep are a great one for what you're describing. Yeah, because how else do you show that vista? How else do you show that topography that they live in? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's something I try to do. I mean, that's what people want to see. And you're right about the Instagram traction. Anything that shows sky and big country and an animal, that always gets the most love yeah. on social media. Um, yep. But yeah, making the animal big in the foreground with the mountain sheep and getting their scene, getting them 
rugged terrain, the, the vista off behind them, that's the ticket for them. Mm -hmm. And it's the only way I could think of doing it. That's cool. No, that's good. Environmental portraits are, you know, it's part of the world. It's telling their story. It's not necessarily a behavior on the animal, but it tells, there's, you need it in the portfolio. I think it was, and one of the first that professional wildlife photographers that really coined it as far as a look was Michio Hoshino. Yeah. He, I mean, there were pictures of his where he was way up. And back in the day, people wouldn't have even taken the photo where there was just a backlit kind of silhouette moose walking down the stream and you could see the whole world around this tiny moose you know, it was refreshing to see that and still is so well that's why i say put the big lens down because i think we get so accustomed to just having that lens and you're just always ready with it you just don't really look at the other opportunities and if you just leave it at home or leave it at the tent or leave it in the car for just one afternoon or one morning it opens up a whole new you got to be in the right place and you hopefully you've had an experience that you're like oh i could try this so well you take i like to take both i mean i wouldn't i i can't go without the big telephoto but if you're up with the sheep and you're going to be you know they've accepted you you're going to be with them for three or four hours it's just like switching the video take the time switch out the lenses or cameras on your other wide angle lens and and make the most of the day capture that stuff right cool ron Kind of to go along with the, the environmental portrait is at any time that I have an opportunity to catch a reflection, um, a reflection can make an image. So I had this pond back behind a, a house that I used to live in, and there's always turtles sunning themselves out on the, the driftwood or out on a log. And, you know, if there's any breeze at all, obviously there's a ripple in the water so it, do, it doesn't make for a good opportunity. But if you get a nice calm day and you can catch a perfect reflection of that animal, even a turtle on a stump can make a great photo. Um, little, I've, I got a little painter turtle and it, it happened that there was a little bit of a breeze coming through. So you have to be, that turtle's not going anywhere. So you know you've got time. And so I just set up and, you know, eye level, set up, had the composition that I wanted, but you just had to wait for that still moment in the water to where that reflection is just clean. And I, I know people that will create their own reflections, just take it, flip it, put it on the water. You can do that all in Photoshop. But to get a good, clean, real-life image, that's, that's art to me. It's not a photograph. So to get that good, clean, reflective image is just incredibly impressive, I think. And when I see people that do it right, I, I love those images because it's just you have to be there at the right time. You have to be patient enough to wait for the water to be still. I mean, if that animal moves in the water, you're going to have ripples and all of a sudden the reflection has gone. So you've got to wait for everything to be perfectly calm, perfectly still and then get your image and you have to be composed in ahead of time so that when that instant takes place you can capture it but i just i love reflective images and i get mad at myself when i get home and i've clipped even a little bit of of an animal off of what would have been a clean reflection because it it just gives a whole new element to your wildlife images sure it's another way to diversify your portfolio 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and there's lots of opportunities. All animals drink, right? So yep. if there's a river, well, rivers won't work for reflection. I apologize. But if it's a pond on a still morning, and a caribou or, or moose or any animal is going to go drink at it, just to see them walking toward it. And if you have a way to get in position with the light at the right direction, could make it for fantastic reflection, even standing beside it before and after it drinks. You know? mm -hmm. But even a river, I mean, if you find those those places where it's cut, the, the current's cut its way into a bank, created a little bit of an eddy, sometimes you can get some still water back in those areas if, if the current's not coming into it at the time. And, you know, you find a trail where animals are coming to drink there, that's a great opportunity for, but yeah, you, it takes not only some patience or some luck, but also some advanced planning, you know, in some situations. Very cool. All right, my next one has to do with the season that's fast, hopefully fast approaching with spring. And spring is bear mating season. And I love filming bear behavior. Not just the mating stuff, all the behavior around it. So where there are places that you can safely do this, these are the behaviors that I look for. So male bears or boars do a lot of posturing and scent marking and territorial scent laying during the spring mating season, which is usually the beginning of June. First of all, the easiest behavior to get when watching for it is they just stomp on the ground with their front pads, leaving a scent trail behind. So that's interesting. It's super cool on video because they have the swagger. If there's any animal that has swagger while they're walking, it's a male bear in spring mating mode or just before mating season as they're gearing up for this and they pound their push their front pads into the ground another one which is fun to film watch for whether stills or video is male bears will walk up to saplings and walk over them to leave their scent in their territory and it's a behavior that not many people necessarily know, but it's a cool photo document if there's ever a biological need to represent that in an article or a book or something like that. You can see the tree, they walk over it, they urinate as they walk over it and leave their scent and the tree goes whoop and pops up as they go over. Something that's been hilarious that would have been incredible to get on video, but it was before DSLRs were doing decent video that I had this opportunity. I was filming a huge cinnamon black bear boar who walked up to the sapling and the sapling was probably an inch and a half in diameter and tried to bend it and walk over it and failed he got part way up and he was a big bear and he was pushing on it pushing on it and he could not bend it over and it was hilarious because as he let off the tree and got back he kind of looked left looked right and had this kind of embarrassed look on his face and then just walked around and continued on again <laughs> like is anybody watching yeah right i hope nobody saw me do that well he was a beautiful big bear too he, you know it, it's probably the first time that happened to him but it was hilarious to see but far and away the best image for marketability and appeal that i look for for male bears in the spring and whether it's uh, black bear or grizzly i've had it happen far more often with black bears is scent marking and there are trees that they pick as they wander their territory and they'll reuse them and there's no way of necessarily knowing unless you could see one marked up and then there's a trail camera opportunity with metal housing otherwise it's gone that's a whole other story but they'll pick these trees typically 
conifer trees that might be a few feet taller than them and they'll stand up push their back to the tree so it looks like a human being they're all of a sudden bipedal they're standing up on two feet and they're pushing on the tree back and forth rubbing their back looks like they're back scratching they're leaving scent on the tree but it creates an amazing image to see the full height of these magnificent animals as they scent mark the tree but they don't stop there they'll take their front pad reach up to the tree pull it over their shoulder and scent mark some more and then bite the bark off the tree and leave more deposit more scent that way so there's the opportunity to do that great imagery to not only show the behavior most people don't know that's what they're doing for the behavior they just love the fact that that's a bear standing up and looking so magnificent do it vertically it begs to be shot vertically but if there's time and they don't do it for long so this is this is the handicap to this is that you only have when they stand up it's only a few seconds they do this for and when they look up and are rubbing their back on the tree which most of the time their snout or nose is pointing toward the sky it limits what you can do with the image it's not as powerful an image but right before they drop to all fours they almost always look straight away and it was only for one second and their heads parallel and then you can get their eyes you get catch light in their eye and you get an expression and their magnificent head and then they drop down to all fours and the deal's done so time it they stand up they do that they'll stretch back they'll bite the tree and then be ready for when their head comes to look straight towards you that's the shot shoot it vertically if you're blessed and have the opportunity to see more than one bear do this it's also cool to get as far as uh, magazine world goes i'll shoot them horizontally and just make sure the bear is only on one side of the frame and not and not crossing the median for the two page so that compositionally you have those op opportunities but nothing like it for a vertical and one of my favorite images just to show how majestic and powerful these bears are when they stand up and do this in the springtime very difficult to shoot that with video because, because of what yeah. you said with the time it's just like you have to be set up right how do you know there's certain trees you can see them walking along through a meadow and if there are two conifers one at the beginning of the meadow one at the end that might be seven feet tall you just look at it and think oh you have no choice but to, for video get set up on one of those trees and if he doesn't do it try to quickly get on the next one right that's the right. only way it's really hard i've got it with stills not as good as you've got it but i've got it but i've tried for video several times and you can if you know if you're in the same area what you might want to do is just park on a tree you know there's places where those bears will keep traveling by and they'll off they'll a lot of times use the same tree right but Other bears will. how much time do you have how much time do you want to spend in the woods Yeah, and on that, way, waiting for that? There, yeah, it's a rare situation, but there are places where it can be captured, and it's just a matter of training one's eye to know what type of tree is they like and have that opportunity and be in position ahead of time, too. I right. mean, there's no point in being behind now. As long as you, you want to be ahead of it, and again, it's got to be an inner scenario that keeps it safe for both the bear and the photographer, too which I could get into, but that's in a whole other subject. Right. All right. I'm next. Yes, sir. So this number four. This is it. I hope because I'm, okay. this is number I don't four. Have... That's right. Tapped out. Okay. We're on round four of dynamic right. wildlife photography. 
So I've had really good luck getting a lot of attention on particular shots when I include something that's man-made. So it's, and what I mean by that is, and I'll give a couple of examples. I have a shot from a place here in Colorado where it's a big viewpoint and there's a lot of mountain goats. And what'll happen is these mountain goats get really curious around human scent and they'll jump up and there's some, um, what are those telescopes or what do they call them? Is it a, a viewing scope? It's not necessarily a high-end telescope, but it's a viewing scope on these high points. And these goats will get up there next to it. And I got a picture at one point where a goat is looking through the scope. It's a totally different shot, right? And it's so perfect for a magazine because it just is something that's a little bit different. So I, it's kind of like I had on my list here different shots. I have a shot of a bear walking down a, a road, and there's a traffic jam behind him. That tells a monster story, right? That was on our and it's Instagram. Just, yeah, yes, exactly. You so, you know. Up. That was good. Yeah, not too long ago. I don't remember when it was. But mm -hmm. just so different shots. And it tends to involve man-made things. And so you have the cards. You have the telescope. Just anytime you can get that situation, it's, it's just a little different. And in these days, when anybody can take a portrait, it's so nice to be able to get something a little bit different because I think that's what a lot of the editors are wanting. You want to get something that draws the attention. You know, what is that image? And a lot of times you can involve. And it's sad to say, but it's easier to get now than ever because there's more people in the woods now than ever. So um, I would just uh, point get a lot those. Of comments on social media too. I mean, a lot of, a lot of um, engaging comments, uh, funny ones, people when they see that, how the bear is holding up the traffic jam. And, I remember reading one of the comments how there was a motorcyclist way in the back in that image and somebody right. mentioned how yeah the motorcyclist was smartly staying way in the back but there's all those opportunities are there um you know i took one last spring of a grizzly sow coming toward a gate and i've put this one up and, and the gate on the side that you can see there's a big sign that says closed and there's this grizzly sow yep. walking toward it. And my joke was when put it on social media, it was like, okay, fine. I accept closed. I'm not going in there. Right. right. So here's this grizzly right. bear walking toward. And then there was a flip side of that where they were uh, the same afternoon walked back down that closed road. And so that grizzly sow and her big cub were walking toward the gate and obviously ignoring the closed sign. But yeah, you can, <laughs> you, can you know. Yeah, they don't respect the signs. They do what they no, want to do. But no, it's just a, it's just something good. It's just something different. It's just something to be on the lookout for, and and that is going to set your portfolio apart from just the standard shots. Mm -hmm. Variety, and we get that. You know, I, I've had clients of various sorts request images that involve some aspect of humanity, whether it's something to address the need to manage wildlife and human interaction in some of these places. You know, there, there are needs for this stuff. Right. And, and again, yeah. diverse, just like the environmental portraits are so critical to diversifying one's port portfolio, like reflections would be as well. It's just a variety of content, different styles, different compositions for the most impressive submission to who or art gallery display. Or, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Ron, what's your number four? What's yours going to be? Because I'll steal it. <laughs> I haven't decided yet. My number, my number four, I had, so, I had weather one. I had environmental portraits. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> so my my number four favorite time of the year behaviors to get is um, 
young of the year breeding, feeding. Um, when those animals are, are first born, you know, whether it's a, a deer nursing a fawn or elk nursing a calf, sheep nursing a lamb, uh, all of those shots just to show the basically rearing the young. Uh, some of my favorite behaviors are, are with birds. And, you know, a sage grouse, for instance, those little guys will just trail right after mom and they just string out like a herd of elk in the wintertime, just single file. You know, ducks will do the same thing even in the water. They'll string out s single file. Uh, but some of my favorites are feeding shots, of course. And the reason that I like those feeding shots, especially with uh, predators, is because of the time that it takes to get them. I mean, the, the first time that I got a swift fox bringing food back to the den, and it was always a behavior that I wanted. And I think I've talked about this before in a podcast. It was like nine years after the first time I photographed a swift fox. It just takes a long time. It takes pre-planning and just a ton of patience to get those images. Um, and then some of the other ones that I, you know, I enjoy is if you look at water birds, specifically uh, loons and mergansers, a lot of times the young of the year will be riding on mom's back. And it's the reason is because they can't control their, their body temperature yet. And so they need to get out of the water uh, from time to time so they can warm back up. So get up on mom's back warm up and then they're back in the water it's not that they can't swim they can but they'll get up there to uh to control the body temperature and those images if you can get it right um you know we don't have loons in wyoming or enough to be predictable um i've seen several people that have just some amazing loon images charles glatzer you know is one that he's got the just perfect light scenario got all the eyes looking at you all the babies riding mom's back that kind of thing so you can check out his page to see some of those uh, but we do have a lot of mergansers so that's one species that you know they're kind of the poor man's loon or the wyoming guy's loon you get out photograph those little guys on mom's back and it's a it's a fantastic behavior to observe for one but to be able to get an image of it that's just bonus. But all of the behaviors with young of the year, I I enjoy just watching them sometimes. It's fun in the spring, especially. I mean, it's something yeah. you can photograph. It does have a strong market. Elk calves, moose calves, white-tailed deer fawns. I mean, they have such a cute factor. If you can get a deer fawn in a field of wildflowers with its mom, goldenrod in the summertime, that kind of color with their dappled coat. Absolutely. Yep. And they're so stinking playful. I mean, it doesn't matter the species. Mm -hmm. Mammals, I guess, especially. But, you know, swift fox, for instance, those little suckers will just try to ambush each other all day long. I mean, that's how they learn hunting techniques. When they run, they're always, if you watch them, they're always swatting at the hind feet of that's the other one. That's how they'll that's tumble like, a rabbit. That's like us when we're filming together. Three of yeah, us. absolutely. <laughs> always messing around. <laughs> So it, you know, all those play behaviors as well. Uh, yeah, the the bighorn sheep lambs are some of the most playful, and it's like they are bouncing around on four springs. 
those things can launch themselves from standing completely still with straight legs. And it's, it's some of the most fun young of the year activity to watch those guys just play. I think they're the cutest too. Yeah. Out of all the babies out there, I think That's the big one sheep babies, I think so. You brought that up before, I think. Yeah. 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 And I think I threw But you got to get them when they're little itty bitty bear ones. Cubs, just... uh, bear cubs playing in trees where that's very cute. Yeah. The way but they the cute factor, just the face on those, they're just, what, three, four weeks old is, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. I've only yeah. seen it five or six times, but pretty cool. Absolutely. And, and, uh, just to mention that, I mean, spring bear cubs for black bears because they spend so much time in trees. That, that's one of my favorites as well for young of the year opportunities. Even if they're yep. sleeping up there, you see them curled up sleeping on a branch and then they're, they're playful or they're out on a branch or they're swinging from a branch. All <laughs> kinds of crazy scenarios in the right place at the right time where it can be safely filmed. All right, my final one is one I, since Michael didn't claim it, I'm going to go with it. And it's not something that is hugely popular nowadays, but really is still very real and natural and warranted in it. And moving in many ways to film a photograph are predator and prey relations. And you have the opportunity to document that. 20 years ago, that was all the rage. If there was an opportunity to have predators such as wolves or if a grizzly had taken over uh, a carcass on a caribou or a moose or what have you and the real world wildlife filmmaking and photography potential of those stories to watch for that now they are rare i was looking at the microphone yet again i'll stop <laughs> like three more podcasts they they it's total luck of the draw and and opportunities i've seen predators challenge ungulates prey species so many times and just not in scenarios i could document it's all visual it's all up here just as good up here i mean amazing things to witness Uh, michael has had opportunities on moose and caribou kills in the far north that were and i'm gonna say it epic what he was able to document over the days in the position he had at a safe vantage point from these sites to see what happened and, and to film that. And I, I can't help but keep, I don't want to steal it from you, man, but I can't help. No, it. that's fine. But the story of when the caribou kill the wolves and correct me if any of the details are wrong, the wolves took down this caribou, the grizzly sound cubs came in and the fact that she built that Island by building the stones around this is a, took place on a river in the far north. Build the stones right. around to separate her and her cubs and the carcass from the wolf, the wolf pack, who wanted it back but weren't were willing to fight her for it, but were kept, kept trying, right? So right. she built this island to witness that behavior and, and to see the real world out there that we're so removed from and to document that. It's just something to witness. And there's a limited application nowadays. It used to be, like I said, everyone wanted those pictures more than anything else because it told the story of how these animals get along with their populations, with caribou being a prey species or, or whatever it might be, deer. And some of the, I'm working on a project right now for a publisher that, that there are some prey, predator prey images that are that 
Michael had some that I'm hoping to include, and another friend, Barrett, has a couple that were just so striking to see wolves chasing, and, and you could see their methodology, how they fanned out, and they're, you know, with the bison, and what they're doing, and how they're trying to stock up, and, and the strategy behind it, and documenting that when there's an opportunity. It's just phenomenal, and just, I think it's an experience that anybody who witnessed it firsthand would carry with them for the rest of their lives not just documenting it. it and so it's something else in the real world for dynamic wildlife behavior predator and prey and to see that unfold is very you're powerful. right i mean and it was really popular back 20 years ago mm -hmm. uh, the one situation that i filmed with the moose and wolves and bears that spread ran in europe i didn't sell it somebody sold it for me but it was twenty thousand bucks just for i don't know like six pictures you know just on one sale and you just you don't even hear that nowadays nothing wrong with that no it was great and nowadays it'd be hard i mean again to witness it and and part of that real world of wildlife and these interactions between populations is something but it's it's harder to market it if you were to do a huge canvas or metal of that you would sell some but not as many as the amazing caribou scene that ron has behind him there with the mountains and the beautiful animal right. but it's something to document and it's such a, I guess my point is to bear witness to it. And it's such a rare opportunity to document it and put it in the portfolio because you'll never know when that may come up and could be marketable too on a project. Well, very much so. And it's a reality. It's what goes on out there. I mean, I've seen it a few times, but you know that that stuff goes on every day. You just, hope that you're in the area where you actually get to see it and, yeah. and even times if a wolf pack is pursuing an elk you know i've seen images that people have taken in the west and the elks in the river it's not necessarily the elk is down the elk is dead they're feeding on it it doesn't have to be that part of the story it's just showing the tension of that you don't know that elk may have got away that bull standing in the river or maybe not there were six wolves surrounding him on the banks you know they were testing him He's in the river, not the best place to be, but it's safer for a short period of time. But who knows? But it's just that tension of that image, the power of that image. And I think for the photographer who took it, it'll probably mean the most. Right. And to have that up, you know, in their den and the story will be told a thousand times to friends and family as they come over and everybody will be moved by it. Whether it would sell a lot to people for other presentations, I don't know, but... As far as animal behavior, it's incredibly powerful to see that in action, and and that's the world that we actually do live in. Yeah, I think I think we tend to be very soft nowadays, right? You just want the soft, pretty things, and the not the most marketable anyway, right? Nowadays, right? But it's not reality. Look at the links that Missy got in far north in September. Amazing shot. Beautiful animals, cute animals, pine martens. Right. Everybody looks at a pine martin and thinks it's the cutest thing on going, and and they are super cute, but they're all business, right? <laughs> they have a high metabolism, and it's you know it's all business. It is all business. It's all part of behavior and being a dynamic wildlife photographer. I like the variety of stuff today. Right on. <laughs> well, I hope that you've enjoyed hearing some of our stories and tactics for creating dynamic wildlife images. In closing, I'd like to thank 
our talented and hardworking producer, Missy McKenzie, for all that she does to create this podcast for your listening enjoyment. I'd like to also ask that no matter which podcast platform you're listening to us on, or on YouTube, that you hit that follow or subscribe button. No, 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 no. It's smash. You want me to smash, but then... You got to smash the hitting, button. I'll slow it down. If we hit it, it's one thing. Smashing it, you're going to get somebody's like so enthused with what's happening, and they're like, yes! It's like, no! <laughs> <laughs> Broken! Yes! No! Don't do that. <laughs> All right. No, no matter how you do it, just do it. Do it. Do it. It's free, right? Follow along, subscribe, give us a positive review, the thumbs up on YouTube, the five-star rating on the podcast platforms, because those reviews help us to do what we love to do and to bring you this podcast on a regular basis. And we invite you to spread the word of our show, share our Facebook content on your Facebook pages to your friends and family to help us get established as well. You can see more of our work, our podcast content on Instagram, Facebook, on our website at wildandexposed.com, as well as on our YouTube channel. Until next time, you've been listening to Wild and Exposed Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.